Hello, everybody. This episode is going to be part one of a series on capitalism, and this episode will be learning the financial industry without having to learn all of the terms one by one. So we're going to try to just understand the finance industry, what it is, more importantly, why it is, how it is, and the function that it serves. We can go also toward the end more into its backstory and history. So I'm going to kind of start with the conclusion um, and then work backwards. So the main things that I see people not understanding about the New York Stock Exchange is just how fast everything moves and what is really going on. So if you understand the basics of what a stock is, that's just owning a part of a company. And namely, uh, <laughs> more specifically, it's, I would say, in theory, it's being entitled to a certain percentage of that company's profits, returns, um, earnings. But you can own you know, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of Microsoft. And when Microsoft gets money, you get a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of it. Unless Microsoft spends that money doing Microsoft things. So you have to kind of understand that the only value in any stock is its supposed future return in theory. But it's gotten so far from that theory that it doesn't even matter anymore, really on any meaningful timescales. You can have companies that don't pay any dividend for decades and it's fine because they grow. They always grow. So you have to realize that most of the financial industry, what they do, okay? This is to summarize it, guys, just top to bottom. They predict the future. That's it. That's all they do. And they try to allocate financial resources according to those predictions. If you can predict the future, you know, you can be the richest person. It's crazy, guys. If you can predict the future even one second in advance, you can be the richest person in the world in an hour. You know, maybe less. It's crazy. So all they're trying to do is predict the future. And that's it. That's it. And the problem is that you're trying to predict other people predicting other people predicting other people predicting the future. And some people trying to gamify other people's predictions into their own predictions and then that getting turned into its own prediction. Everybody is just trying to predict the future to put their money in a place that's going to make them that's not going to result in their money going to waste. They want to give their money to things that are smart and that are going to produce returns. So even though Amazon has never paid a dividend to my knowledge, they grow. So you can invest your money in a percentage of Amazon knowing that it's going to be valuable because the company has so much revenue and market share. So you know that you can dump that share even though you've never actually gotten a return. But you have to remember, guys, that the share isn't actually worth anything in reality. Like, like until, until it pays a dividend. Like, the value is theoretical. 
because a share of Amazon has never done anything for anybody except let them sell it for more than they got it for. Like having the share has never gotten a check mailed to your door. I mean, maybe Amazon has paid dividends by now, but I'd be surprised. It doesn't matter. The point is Tesla hasn't. They've never paid a dividend, you know, so and and so you can have it's all about just the predictions and everybody, you know, it, it used to be it used to be trends on Wall Street and now it's grown into trends in pop culture and on the internet and on subreddits and things. But um, you know, it's subject to all that because you're trying to predict the future of a of, of a mob, you know, who's who's gonna win the Super Bowl next year? God, I don't know. Who's gonna win? Who's gonna win the war in Syria? That was one that 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 one of my professors got wrong in 2014. 2014, the year had been the war had been going on for what a couple of years, and he got it wrong, saying that Assad would lose like imminently. That Assad's defeat was imminent. It wasn't. Assad's still around. So it's very very hard to predict the future. Now you'll understand what all the instruments are, like all the lingo and stuff. It's all different ways of trying to predict the future. That's all it is. So derivatives kind of all a derivative is, is just trying to predict the behavior of the stock itself. Really, um, if I had to simplify it, not even the you can also have futures in things that are like. If you think corn is going to be way more valuable in four years than it is today because you think all the corn's going to die, you can buy corn futures and say that, um, but what is a future? It's just a contract. So you have to have somebody at the other end betting against you. It's all just betting on the future. So there always has to be somebody on the other end. So if you own options, for example, what is an option? It's just a contract to sell the sell a, sell a stock for a certain price at a certain date if the person if the holder of the contract wants to. And that's it. So there always has to be somebody on the front end and the back end, and that's what controls the prices. So it's like, well, if nobody's willing to write an option for this stock, that makes the options that makes the stock very that means the stock's very unpredictable. So that means that um, that means that nobody wants to try to predict where nobody wants to say, yeah, sure, I'll bet you this stock's not going to go crazy in a, in a couple months. When you're when you're writing options, you're just saying you're just basically saying that the stock's not going to go somewhere within a certain time frame. And then when you're buying the option, you are saying that it is going to and trying to win big. So you have to pay money in order to get the other person to agree to that stake. Like, okay, I'll sell it to you for this price in the future, regardless of what happens. And then you have to pay what's called the premium for that um, in order to, you know, let that person uh, accept the risk. And then you're hoping for the big buyout if you're right. So... You can see how like even something that seems as as strange as options and stuff like it's been 
a couple minutes and it's words. It's just words. It's like driving, right? It's like, well, what is a wheel? What is a what is a steering wheel? What's steering? What's a door? What's this? And it's like, well, it's not actually that complicated, though. Like when you bust past the freaking language. So all a stock is, is trying to predict future earnings of a group of people. And that group of people is called the company. And then all, well, actually, no, that group of people, the company is the shareholders if it's a public company. But that group of people is called, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in, in aggregate, I suppose that group of people is the company. Like Amazon, the company is the, the thing that is expected to make money. So, yeah, like including all the board and including all the shareholders, like their decisions, you know, their ownership. So, you know, it's all, if you just start from, oh, people are trying, people have money and they're trying to put it somewhere that makes sense. And in order to do that, they want to know, they want to try to predict the future so that they can put it in the bank that's not going to burn. You know, you can make it as simple as which bank to put your money in. And one of them is going to have a fire in a month. You're going to want to start to predict the future. So you're going to do research on the fire department and all that kind of stuff and which bank which bank doesn't have sprinklers in it and things like that and put your money in the safer one, the more reliable one. Or maybe the riskier bank is like, yeah, sure, we have a higher fire risk, but we pay out like 10 times the interest because of that. So who cares? And then some people will want to take that risk. Or, And so interest rates directly affect risk of future of loss and I guess I'll do an aside here and go into interest rates because it's going to kind of come up as a buzz term. And all it is, is if I give you $100, how much do you have to give me back in a set amount of time? If it's $101, that's 1% interest. Usually that set amount of time will be one year. So if it's a 5% interest rate, that means that if I give you $100, you have to give me back 100 plus 5% dollars in a year. So in principle, it would be $105. But in reality, there's all kinds of, of games and qualifiers and mismatching and well, not mismatching mix and matching and all kinds of stuff. So for the financial crisis, for example, when they're talking about like mortgages, all the mortgage is, is that contract on the house that I'm going to give you $400,000 and you're going to pay it back. And if you don't, I'm going to take your house and split the difference with you, basically. And that's what foreclosure is. And that contract is the mortgage. So the bank can take that mortgage and say, hey, I have this contract with this guy. Do you want it? Sure. And then sell it. Or they can use it as collateral to secure their own loan from somebody else. They can say, well... Hey, um, give me money, give me $400,000 and then I'll give that guy $400,000. And if I can't pay you back, I will take his house, you know, something like that. It's like they have that. I have this contract as a way of getting their own loans and everybody is loaning from everybody else. And there's, almost, there's very little real money in the economy anymore. It's mostly just loan money, like 
Um, it's mostly just numbers in that sense because it's people loaning based on a loan based on a loan based on a loan. That's called the money multiplier and the Fed tracks it. I believe it's about 10%. Uh, I think it's at 10% right now. It's sort of, sort of controlled by the reserve ratio, which is how much cash you require the bank to hold. Because if the bank has to hold that $400,000, like if they have to hold a certain amount of the cash, value of the mortgage then you can have some level of certainty if the person um doesn't pay back well that that's that's defaulting when you default it's just that you didn't pay back so if the person defaults there's some level of safety where the bank still has something and you have to remember that the mortgage itself where did the bank get the four hundred thousand dollars well, it's not the bank's money. It's the people who put the money in the bank's money. That's the reserve ratio is how much is the bank allowed to loan out in regards to how much it takes in. But it doesn't fully control the money multiplier anymore because there's so many more instruments on top of it all. So you can have it. You can create money with financial instruments in ways that were not possible in the pre-digital, pre-information era. And now you can kind of understand how interest rates are related to loans and the behavior of the economy and a lot of what the Fed has to regulate. And I will discuss later in this episode exactly how the Fed regulates interest rates and and the mechanisms and how the central banks are tied into that. Not this episode, sorry, uh, the part two, but mainly the point of going into interest rates is to discuss how everything is centered around the risk inherent in trying to predict the future. If you put your money in the hands of someone else, expecting them to make you money with it, that's a lot of trust. It's all about that trust, right? Do you want to give your money to Coca-Cola? Do you want to give your money to Microsoft? Or do you want to give your money to the guy next door? Well, the guy next door is going to have to offer you a higher incentive, a better reason to give you his money because he's less likely, he's less reliable, he has less cred. You know, he he's not as likely to be able to pay you back. So he has to offer you more money back. He'll say, hey, give me a hundred bucks and I'll pay you two hundred bucks back. So that's why payday loans, for example, are so expensive. It's because they're the payday loans are to people who don't have enough to back up they don't have the collateral. They don't have enough to back up their desire for a loan. So the person says, well, if you don't pay me back, then what? Then nothing. I don't know. I don't have anything. Okay, well, you're going to have to give me a lot of interest rate for me to get, for me to trust you. You have to offer me a high incentive. So 
it's all reflective on the trust. And when the trust breaks down, the whole system breaks down. The whole financial system, anyway. So, I'm going to go into right now just how I feel about the financial system in general. It's mainly a love-hate relationship. Um, I think that it means too much, and it has too much of an effect on the real world. But at the same time, I think that it's... I, I think that the financial system as a whole does result in the efficient aggregation of financial resources, which is its social function. But some of the quirks and gamified features of it have too many real-world effects or more real-world effects than they have to have. And so... When you realize that, I guess that's a good time to go into the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones. When you hear those things, it's, you know, it's things that don't exist, you know, like, especially the Dow Jones. The reason why the Dow Jones is so bad is because it cares what the nominal price of the stock of the share is. So, for example, if a Google share is worth $800 and a Coca-Cola share is worth $40. The Dow Jones cares a lot about that, when in reality it doesn't mean anything because the company can just divide its shares. Like A company can make its shares worth less whenever they want to. So Google can just divide and just say, okay, every share is now 10 shares, and the share value would go from $800 to $80. And just because Google didn't do that for its own reasons and Coca-Cola did a long time ago, now the Dow Jones cares a lot more and thinks that Google is worth more when it's not. And how you scale the value of the company instead is that's the metric that's called the market cap. And you just take how many shares are there and how much is a share worth. And so it's a theoretical value that itself isn't real because you could never actually, if you actually, if you tried to sell all the shares, they wouldn't sell for that value it's a nominal it's like the it's the theoretical the mathematical the nominal value of the company so market cap is very important it's it's the value of the company if you just take the value of a share and then how many shares there are so that's how much does the whole company cost how much does it cost to buy this company how much is this company worth a company is worth its market cap. Market cap is the measure of a company's worth. So if you, you have to keep in mind though, that like these aren't real things because the share price itself is based on the speculation of the company's future behavior. And the company's future behavior is itself expected on this the company's assessment of the consumer's future behavior right like so many things can happen blockbuster can go bankrupt in a week you don't know what's going to happen so that is what the s p 500 does so well and also the dow jones because when you group the companies together then you don't have to worry then you're looking at the tide instead of each ship right so Sure, like a couple of companies like Blockbuster might go bankrupt, but I have my money in the S&P 500. It's the 500 biggest market cap. 
That's all it is. So it changes constantly. So like, oh, which companies are in the S&P 500? Well, it depends. The bottom ones fluctuate. So like the ranks, you know, the bottom rankings change because it's just defined by a metric. So there's all different kinds of like cool variations and all those combinations like the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, those are called EFTs, uh, exchange ETFs, exchange traded funds, ETFs. And I think that they're cool. I like them a lot. They are a financial instrument that is, it, it's like a derivative, but it's not traded on the derivatives market. It's traded on the stock exchange. So you can buy, you can now buy the S&P 500 on the New York Stock Exchange through uh, an ETF. And that ETF's symbol is SPY. So if someone's talking, if you see someone on Reddit and they're like, oh, like SPI is down, SPY is down. SPY is the ETF that measures the S&P 500. Uh, it was made, I think, in the 80s or 90s. You can listen to a podcast episode by the guy who made it. He did like a long interview. Um, so, you know, all these things are just, it's just because of history. Like some guy invented something one time and then some guy invented a thing based on that. And then it's just like cars. Like what's the spark plug? Well, some guy had one challenge and then another guy figured it out. And then now it's one thing. And then it's like, well, the engine and then the, the, the crankshaft and the aft house, like everything that's in a car, you know? But it starts to seem so complicated, but all they're trying to do is predict the future. And that's still the only thing that controls any of it. So when they when the future becomes less predictable, the whole system breaks down. That's what happened in the financial crisis is people decided that the future was too unpredictable in regards to which financial banks to put their money in or loan to and which financial institutions. And that was uh, pretty bad, you know, because then everything just kind of freezes up. And so um, that's when the government just starts to pump so much money because it's more of a freeze up problem than an actual solvency problem. I'm going to wrap it up now, this episode, and, and, and turn it into part two is going to be the major misconceptions about the financial crisis. And I'll wrap up this episode by mentioning part one, and that's that the bailouts were bailouts, or that the bailouts were a gift, or that the bailouts were bad, or that the bailouts were, um, or basically that the banks didn't deserve the bailouts, and how all that works. And, you know, I will say that this is part one of two or three on the financial industry, but all of this is part one of the series on capitalism. And I'm an anti-capitalist, so don't at me, all right? I'm going to say some positive things about it all. Don't at me. All right. Thank you, everybody, very, very, very much. Thank you.